I'm not Abby. It's pretty obvious. My name is Taylor Lazenby. I'm the pastoral intern, church planting resident downtown. Uh, so from time to time, when a pastor's gone or when they're out of town, I'm kind of the guy that steps in. I, uh, I, I'm kind of the bullpen, so to speak. So it's my prev- privilege, my pleasure to, to be here with you this morning and to be able to bring the word of God to you. So as we get started this morning, I want to tell a quick story. Many of you have heard of the missionary Jim Elliott. If you've grown up in church from the 1950s until now, you've probably heard a sermon or some kind of illustration or something to do with Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was born on October 8th, 1927 in Portland, Oregon to believing parents. And he had a normal childhood. He grew up like a normal kid, him and his brother, but his parents being believers would encourage both the boys, hey, live for Christ. Live for Jesus, no matter what that may look like in your life. And so Jim goes to Wheaton College in Illinois, a really prestigious undergraduate and graduate university, Christian university. And there he, he begins to distinguish the call of God on his life. Should, should I go into youth pastoring or should I become a missionary? What should I do, Lord? And eventually he gets to this point where he's like, We have enough youth pastors. There's enough people domestically in the United States in order to reach this nation for Christ. So I'm gonna go where he's never been proclaimed. I'm gonna go to Ecuador. And so he prepares and he goes and he learns the language and how to to be able to translate the Bible into the language of these Alca natives this group of natives that are in Ecuador, a tribal village who are threatened by outsiders, but also kind of violent. But he says, hey, I'm gonna go there anyway, me and my team, me and Nick Saint and two others. We're gonna go to Ecuador and we're gonna go and we're gonna share the gospel there. They get there and they meet someone named George, the tribal guy that they named George. And they were able to, they thought, make nice, make friends with George. And Eventually, on January 8th, 1952, George and a band of 12 of these Alcas come to the river of Curahay and they would spear Jim Elliott and Nick Saint to death. And we hear these stories and we always thinking, why? Why would something like that have to occur? Why, God? Why would you send a man who's maybe 30 to his death? in Ecuador, in a place that he's not familiar with, he's not comfortable with. After all, God, you called him down there, did you not? Why would you let something like this tragedy happen? Why? But the, what I wanna portray for you this morning is, was it, was it really a tragedy that Jim Elliott would lose his life on the mission field for the glory of Christ? Was that a, a tragedy? Or would God use that in such a way that it would spawn more missions, more international missions, more church plants than ever before. You see, people thought that because of Jim Elliott's death, there would be no more international missions. There would be no more evangelism abroad. There would be no more church planting domestically and internationally. But instead, because of Jim Elliott's death, the Lord used that in such a way where there was a spike, a tremendous increase in those who would go. Was it a tragedy? Right before his death, a couple years in his journal before, he would write those famous words that many of us are familiar with today. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain 
what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And those words have been immortalized in many places today. Was it a tragedy? You see, I think and believe that Jim Elliott's worldview was so biblical and he was so doctrinally confident that he was able to make the ultimate sacrifice in order for the glory of God and the gospel to go forth. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Everyone knows the story of Jim Elliot, for the most part. So as we, as we come to the scriptures today, what we're gonna see Jesus do for us is he's gonna challenge our worldview. He's gonna, he's gonna push back against the normal things that we think are normal and how we operate our lives. And he's gonna give a paradoxical call that's gonna change the world. So would you stand with me as we always do and read this scripture here, John 12, 20 through 26. That's where we're gonna be. Now, among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We pray real quick. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our path, would you open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word this morning, that our lives may be more conformed to what we have understood. Really, nothing may be displeasing to you, Father. Pray these things in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. So before we even really start to unpack this passage, we must understand the context of where this is. Why would, why would John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why would he put this text right here, right now? So just a quick recap of what's been going on in the book of John. So John kind of explodes out the gate. And Jesus in chapter two, he, he comes to this wedding at Cana in Galilee and they run out of wine, which is something that he just don't do at weddings back then. And, but they had this water, so he turned the water into wine and his popularity starts to increase. And then he would go and he would talk to many different kinds of people, people that you don't really associate with a whole lot. Chapter three, we see him talking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews who comes by night and Jesus gets to explain what it means to be born again. What does it mean to have one's heart changed really from the inside out? Chapter four, we see him talking to a woman of Samaria. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans at all. They did not associate with Samaritans at all, but he would tell her the promise that we can all keep, that he really is the living water, that, thirst, that quenches our thirst. 
so desperately. And he, his popularity really continues to arise as he's teaching and he's healing and he's preaching and he's doing all of these different things and his popularity begins to reach a tipping point where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers of that day say, hey, we cannot have this man doing this. His authority rivals ours and he's really tearing down everything that we have built up as the Pharisees and ruler of the Jews. So what do they do? They, they start to really push back against the things that Jesus is teaching them. They start to push back against Jesus and eventually they, they plot to kill Jesus because he's doing such incredible things and his popularity continues to skyrocket. And then we get here, chapter 12, and Jesus enters into Jerusalem on not a stallion, like he's gonna conquer, but on a donkey. And there's excitement and there's vitality, and, and there's just all this pomp and circumstances surrounding Jesus entering here, and then Jesus speaks words here in chapter 12, and we're gonna slow down a lot. You see, the first 12 chapters of John covered three years of Jesus's ministry, Cover the first three years. We're gonna be here in chapter 12 and following for the next 10 chapters, and it's gonna cover only a week of his life. John slows down right here. Chapter 12 is the turning point. Chapter 12 is the fulcrum upon which the book of John turns. It is finally what is going to happen as Jesus sets his face toward Calvary. So first this morning, I want to want you to see the approach of these Greek men. So as I said, Jesus has entered Jerusalem He's seen the pomp and he's seen the circumstance and he's seen all of this because of the Passover feast and they're celebrating the Passover feast as a reminder of what God did back in Exodus where he delivered his people from the bondage, physical bondage of Pharaoh. And now what we have is Jesus riding in where he's gonna deliver his people once again, but not from a physical bondage, but from a sin bondage, from a spiritual bondage. And it's the biggest festival of, of the year as the Jews celebrate this momentous time in their history, hoping for the time that God would do it again. So inside, as Jesus has entered, he's probably gone into this temple. And this temple, as we see and learned about in, in John 2, where he clears the temple, we see, hey, there's an inner portion of the temple and then there's these outer courts. And in this inner part of the temple is where the Israelites would go and they would worship the one true God the way that he has commanded them. But these Greek men who are here for the Passover, these Gentiles, these non-covenantal people of God would be in the outer courts. As you can see, it says court of the Gentiles. This is where they would see, but they could see into the temple. They could see the Jews, the people of God, worshiping God the way that he has commanded them to worship. So presumably Jesus has gone into the temple to worship God the way that he has commanded them. And these Greek men go and find Philip. Now, this may seem kind of crazy, but why, why would they even go up to Philip? There's, there's 12 disciples. Why Philip? Well, Philip is probably more Greek. They would probably know his language. He would probably speak Greek. He would be dressed more Grecian because he's from this part of North Galilee that had been Hellenized. That had been Hellenized by the Greeks. So he would probably know and be able to really interact with these Greek men. And so they come up and they ask him, we... We want to see 
Jesus. Sirs, we want to see Jesus. They no doubt had heard of this Jesus. They no doubt had heard of the miracles that he performed, the things that he did, the people that he raised to life, the people he healed, he made the lame walk and the blind see. They had heard about the exploits and the magnificence of Christ without a doubt, and they wanted to experience him for themselves. And so Philip goes and gets Andrew, and Philip and Andrew then go together to get Jesus. But sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they, are, they truly are, I believe, in my study of the scriptures and the reading, I believe that they, these men are being earnest. They really want to experience Jesus more deeply than before. They're not accidentally seeking Jesus. They're not traipsing through life and stumbling upon him. They're they're deliberately seeking Jesus because they want an audience with Jesus. They want to experience him even more deeply than before. They're deliberately seeking the king of the universe. So if you allow me to just make a quick application, how do you seek Jesus? How do you seek Jesus? Is he just some medicinal remedy that you take when things are going badly? Is he just something that you take a quick dose of to turn your life around? Is he something that you, you have never heard of? Are you deliberately seeking him because you have heard of the wonders of this man? Because you've heard of the making the lame walk and, and the the mute speak and the deaf hear and the blind see and the dead come to life? Are you seeking him because he has confirmed his deity? How he is the bread of life that you so desperately seek for yourself? Because he is the true and living waters that can quench that unquenchable thirst in your soul. How he is the light of the world and can open your eyes maybe for the first time how he's the good shepherd that cares intimately for your soul and sustains you. These Greeks had heard of the magnificent exploits of Christ. They had heard of the things that he had done and they wanted to experience him even more deeply. Are you finding yourself, as we have experienced Jesus through the word of God, wanting to experience him more? Do you want to know more and more and more of this Jesus, the one who can do all of these things because he is the king of the universe? Secondly, I want you to see that the hour has come. As these Greek men pose this question of of wanting to see Jesus and wanting to experience Jesus even more, more Philip and Andrew go and get Jesus and they probably go into the temple and they probably tell Jesus, hey, these, these Greek men outside, these Gentiles, these, these guys who really are not part of the covenant of people of God want to talk to you. They wanna know you a little bit more. They wanna know you a little bit more deeply. And so Jesus comes out, maybe, we don't know, but we know he says right here that in the presence of Philip and Andrew, he doesn't even really answer any of the Greeks' questions doesn't do anything of that. Instead, he says, time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, throughout the book of John, what we have seen is there has been Jesus kind of pushing back as the crowds have surrounded him. The the Jews wanted to kill him. His own people wanted to enthrone him as the king that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's really what they 
thought. In John 2, the wedding in Cana, Jesus states, hey, my time has not come yet. I'll, I'll turn this water into wine, but, but woman, my time has not come. In John 7, Jesus declares to those who are wishing to see him, ascend to the throne of Israel. The time has not come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 8, he's publicly teaching, and John records for us that the crowds wanted to seize him, but were unable because his time had not yet come. And in John 11, we see that the Pharisees and the rulers of that day were really trying to capture Jesus. They wanted to put him to death then, so they plot to kill Jesus. And we just saw, hey, they plotted to kill Lazarus right here, but the time had not yet come. But now Jesus is back at Jerusalem. He's, he's at the point that he's going to enter Jerusalem for the last time. So from this moment on, the son of man, it's time for me to be glorified. He's setting his face toward the cross. He knows, he knows that it is his time. It's his time. You see, no one was able to arrest Jesus. No one was able to enthrone Jesus because his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come come because ultimately God is in control of everything. And Jesus is acting according to the eternal divine plan that God had set in eternity past to redeem for himself a people at a specific time, at a specific place, through a specific person. And that person is Jesus. And now he has set his face toward the cross and there would be nothing that can thwart the plans of the all-powerful, all-loving, justice-seeking, and completely in control God of the universe. Nothing was going to thwart his plans. Paul records for us as he's talking about this many, many years later in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And now Jesus is declaring, hey, the fullness of time is here. And now is the time for me to be glorified. But the the glory that you think is gonna happen to me, the glorification that you think is gonna happen within me is not gonna be through a coronation. It's gonna be through a cross. I'm not gonna be lifted up and enthroned, but put to death. And you can just kind of see the air the excitement come out of the disciples at this point, probably. All this excitement of maybe the the king of Israel really is Jesus and he's going to enthrone himself now in Jerusalem and he's gonna overthrow the Romans and he's gonna set up for himself this earthly kingdom. Maybe that time is now and Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I mean. My glorification is a crucifixion. My glorification is a death I must die and the time is now. I'm about to leave this world. I'm about to ascend to my father. I'm gonna finish the work that I came to do and I'm gonna be highly exalted, just not in the way that you think I am. My earthly ministry of despair and my earthly ministry of despondency and humiliation is coming to a close, but the time of my glory is drawing near. I'm not going to a throne. 
but I'm going to a cross. And it's gonna be bloody and it's gonna be much suffering, but I will endure it to lead to certain death because through my death and through this glory leads to your life. It leads to your everlasting life. So the, the Greeks, they, they wanna see Jesus. And while it may seem like, hey, these Greek men didn't even get their questions answered. What Jesus is saying when he's saying all this is, I'm gonna give you a better answer. Even though you're outside the covenant people of God, even though you're not a Jew, even though you're outside, this, what I'm doing, this glorification that will take place, this cross will include you. It will include you. The gospel is for all, for all to hear. For when I am glorified, all who will look unto me will find salvation for their souls. Every single one. Charles Spurgeon once said when it came to the gospel that it was four letters, two of them alike. Look, look to the cross. Look to the price of your redemption. Look to the love of God set forth in a cross. Have you looked to the cross to find your life? Thirdly, Jesus would illustrate what he's talking about in three different ways. He would apply it to his disciples. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father must, Father will honor him. So first he uses this illustration of a kernel of wheat. Now think with me real quick. A seed in your hand serves no purpose. While it may have life in your hand, while it may be alive technically in your hand as an organism, it will serve zero purpose unless you let it fall into the ground. Because in the ground where it's rotting and where it's decaying and where it's starting to die, a slow death will bring forth a fruit, will bring forth a yield. There is life to be gained from the death of a seed. A simple illustration that Jesus uses in order to get the point across of what he's saying. This is an agrarian society. This is a society bent on farming. This is how they make their life. They would surely know what a seed does. And yet he uses that seed in a glorious illustration. If we refuse to bury this seed, if we refuse to bury it, then we will never reap a harvest. We will never reap a harvest unless the seed dies. Unless the seed is planted, there will not be life to be gained. We must reap the benefits of the death of the seed. Secondly, Jesus says in this paradoxical statement, this paradoxical call, the version of John records it. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yet Jesus is saying that those who love the comforts of now, those who love the comforts of this life, those who love this, this society that is bent on accumulation and accomplishment and success and prestige and recognition and attainment, 
it doesn't matter. Those things do not matter. If you love the creation more than the creator, then you've got it backwards because the things of this life matter not unless we're really, unless we're willing to crucify our own flesh and buffet our bodies and fight against sin, then we will never inherit eternal life. We must crucify our flesh with our passions and our own sinful desires. He that thinks more of his life now, he that thinks more of his life now does not understand the glory that is to come because all of the things that you can accumulate here, all of the 401ks, all of the IRAs, all of the wealth, all of the materialistic things, all of things like that, if you're concerned about those things, they pale in comparison to the riches in the glory of the kingdom of God. And if we seek after those things, and make them our ultimate goal in life where we elevate them to a status of that is what I want, then we've missed the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've missed it. I pray that is not you. Thirdly, Jesus says, those who claim to serve me must follow me and wherever I am, those who truly serve me, I will be with. So the question is, do you truly follow Jesus, do you live seeking the glory to come? Do you die to yourself daily so that there is life to be reaped from that death? But even in these illustrations, even in these examples that Jesus has given to us, while they are teaching for us and while they are examples to his own disciples, we must remember that Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of all three of these examples. He is the seed that did not refuse to be buried. He did not count his life as more and was willing to give it up. He was the perfect embodiment of the paradox that seeks the glory of God and the attainment of eternal life. He is the one that serves the Father perfectly and follows after the Father, knowing that God will honor him. So do you follow Jesus? This Jesus that we see this Jesus that we have experienced in John, this Jesus that we know is true from the Holy Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knowing it's true. Do you experience Jesus in the ways that the Bible wants us to experience Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Will you honor him? Will you die to yourself daily so that Jesus can be glorified in and through you? There is no glory without suffering. There is no fruitful life without death. There's no final victory without surrender. Have you surrendered today? Have you looked upon the cross of Christ saying, he has taken my sin and he has given me his righteousness so that now I can follow Jesus the way that he wants me to, so that when I'm in the presence of the Father, when he looks at me now, he sees the righteousness of his son. And he says, that one is mine. He has the robes of righteousness of my son, Jesus, and it's only through the cross of Christ where the justice of God meets the love of God and we are bought at a price that is so much more infinite and so much more 
precious than anything, knowing that God sent his only perfect son to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. Is that the Jesus you follow? Or is he just some medicinal remedy for you to take when things are going badly? Do you follow Jesus? Do you heed the paradoxical call to die to yourself every day in order for Jesus to be magnified, in order for Jesus to be glorified because in that, in Jesus' glory is your ultimate joy every single time, every single time. Everyone knows the story of Jim Elliot. Everyone knows the story of Jim Elliot. Not many people know the story of Bert Elliot, his brother. Bert Elliot was a missionary as well. And in 1949, he went with his wife, Colleen, and they went to Peru. So two years before the death, three years before the death of Jim Elliot, Bert and his wife go to Peru to be missionaries. And 60 years of ministry in Peru, in 60 years of ministry, Bert Elliot and his wife planted 160 churches in Peru. 160 churches for the glory of God in Peru. And, and toward the end of Bert's life, as he was winding down and he was starting to get old and, and sickly and wasn't able to perform the missionary duties that he so wanted to do, he sat down and was interviewed. And they asked him about Jim. He said, how would, you, how would you describe your brother Jim Elliot? How would you describe Jim? Everyone knows the story of Jim Elliot, but how would you describe him as his brother? And this is what Bert said. He said, Jim and I both served Christ, but differently. Jim, Jim was a great meteor streaking through the sky. Now, Bert refused to describe himself and his life but this writer went on to describe it for him. And this is what the writer said. He said, while Jim was a great meteor streaking through the sky, Bert was a faithful star rising night after night along that same meteor's path to the glory of God. Two men, two radically different stories, but both willing to heed the paradoxical call he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paradoxical call. Are you willing to heed that call this morning? Are you willing to live your life for the glory of God? Are you willing to live your life for the glory of God wherein you'll find your ultimate joy? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and being able to preach your word. I do pray that your word would not return void, that you would honor the reading and the preaching of your word so that souls would be changed, so that lives will be transformed and molded more into the image of your son. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.